A Korean Airlines flight is on its way to Seoul, South Korea, but the flight never makes it. What caused this flight to crash in the middle of cruise flight? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Chrissy. Today we have... I'm Paige. Hello, Paige. Hello. Paige is a patron, and they are also a friend from Bant. Yes. And is soon to be our editor. Yes. You might actually get to edit this episode. Yeah. (laughs) That would be fun. This will be your test episode. This will be a good good test episode. Okay, well, I hope it turns out right. (laughs) It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So, checklist. Listener episode. Please submit your stories. When and if you can. It will depend on whether we have one this month or we wait till next month. Right. Just so you all are aware. We have new patrons. Yes, we do. So thank you to our new patrons, Lucky, Steven, and Lottie. Thank you. Steven, Stefan. It's one of those names you never know. Yeah. Yeah. Spelt that way, but it can be said either way. Yep. Mm. I've known both. So thank you. Same. Yes, and sorry for the delay for a few of you, because it was like weeks ago when you joined. And then we, like, forgot. This was one of the things that, that was, was not thing. on the checklist for weeks. <laughs> so, thank you so much for being patrons. We appreciate your contribution. Another thing that Paige may or may not be helping with is helping us send out stuff, because we're really bad at it. <laughs> and we're still really behind. But it's going to be really nice to have the fourth person involved that can help us with the logistics while we are insanely busy. Okay. We all still have day jobs, all four of us. Yep. Yeah. And we just, we need help. <laughs> yeah, I really don't do anything with my job or life, so this will be fine. Paige listened to the most great. recent post episode and was like, are you guys okay? <laughs> <laughs> that was the one where we were about. Oh my God, we have so much to do now. <laughs> yeah, also, to be fair, before your trip, I also, I think at one of the rehearsals, reached out to Nick and was like, are you guys okay? Can I please help? Because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. The stress, it hurts my soul. Well, and I mean, there was like a lot of stuff that went to that because we couldn't record for a week because right. Christy was absolutely dead. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So <laughs> that was fun. Hi, hello. I am back from the dead. <laughs> so now. Okay. I think that's all for housekeeping. Do you want to say it? What are we covering today, Nick? All right. Today, we are covering Korean Airlines Flight 007. Do you understand my request now? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> Bond, James Bond? Yes. Also, that was like the theme song for my high school senior class because we were the graduating class of 07. Nice. Mm-hmm. 007. I hate it. It's way more fun as an adult to play it. Yeah. Anyway, it's fair. <laughs> that is fair. So, this accident occurred on September 1st of 1983. This was a Boeing 747-200, the tail number Hotel Lima 7442. This is a Korean tail number, clearly, because this is Korean Airlines. And this is a 747-200, which we haven't talked about a 747 in a hot minute, but it is a quad-engine, very large airplane. Double-decker. A lot of people, yep. Two decks. This is one of the earlier generations of the 747, so the top deck did not have very many seats or much space at all. But it was the original jumbo jet. Yes. This is a flight from JFK in New York. To Anchorage in Alaska, to Gimpo in Seoul, South Korea. Does Gimpo still exist? Yep. Okay. It is primarily used as a domestic or short route airport. Not international. 
there is still some international traffic, but because they have Incheon now, which is so much larger and has longer runways, they're able to carry a lot more people in and out to international destinations. But yes, Gimpo very much still exists as a short route or domestic airport. It is in the middle of Seoul, which is what makes it so convenient. It's why they never got rid of it. Versus Incheon is in Incheon, which is outside of Seoul. It's in a suburb on the coast. I don't know any geography of Korea, so... That's okay. We'll look at a map in the post, and I'll show you just how convenient Gimpo is. The captain for this flight was Chun Byung-in. He was 45 years old at the time, and I have zero hours for any of the crew. This was a weird thing. I would assume it's because they had their logbooks on the airplane. We have to assume it's something like that, but the report never brought up hours or ages. I found them, and names. I found all of this. This oh, is... it might be a Korean thing. Privacy thing? I don't know. Privacy I have thing? no idea why. We've covered Korean airlines before and we had the hours. That's true. This is just this particular accident. So pretty much this information comes from Wikipedia. The first officer for the flight is Sun Dong-hui. He was 47 years old, so he was two years older than the captain. And then the flight engineer for the accident flight was Kim Yui dong And I do not have his age or hours, so... What was the year? 83. 83, okay. The flight departed JFK in New York at 12.05 a.m. local time on August 31st of 1983. That is an important thing, because remember, we crossed time zones, a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The flight from JFK to Anchorage was carried out normally. This was a normal procedure for them because they had to do refueling at the time in order right. to make that distance. So Anchorage was the stop. It is still to this day for a lot of cargo flights, actually. It's... So Primarily a cargo destination. West? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. So the flight from JFK to Anchorage was carried out normally by a different flight crew that were then exchanged in Anchorage. The accident crew had previously arrived at Anchorage from a non-scheduled cargo flight from New York City to Toronto to Anchorage the day before, arriving at 1.37 p.m. local time in Anchorage. The accident crew had been accommodated at the Korean Airlines hostel in Anchorage because that was a thing. I mean, flight attendants to this day... And I don't know if flight crew are involved in this, but they'll mm -hmm. often, like, bunk together. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, they'll have dorms, basically. It depends on where, but yes. A lot of airlines, they'll just put you in hotels, but yeah. there are some airlines that will, they'll buy houses. And that's where the flight <laughs> that, crew stays. That's, yeah. like, the hostel or the crew stay space. I'm sure There's some places that's way cheaper than probably. doing hotels. Oh yeah, oh yeah, on a absolutely. Basis. Because oh, yeah. then if they're there for an extended period of time, they just stay in a house that's already owned by the company. Right. Or if it's than... like a regular stop. Yeah. Right. But this is not a regular practice for a number of reasons. It's a lot easier to insure hotel yes. time rather than houses and business houses. Anyways, all of this was happening in Anchorage before they were being brought back to the airport by a crew bus. An hour and 20 minutes before the revised scheduled departure time from Anchorage, which we'll talk about in a minute. The accident aircraft arrived at Anchorage at 2.30 a.m. local time. All briefings for the flight were completed by the crew before taking the airplane. The flight to Gimpo in Seoul was to have 246 passengers and 23 crew for a total of 269 people on board. That's a lot. That's a lot. We carry more on some aircraft these days. I mean, this airplane wasn't even full. That's but true. Still a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The scheduled departure time from Anchorage for the flight was 3.20 a.m., so it was only going to be a 50-minute stopover, in theory. The flight was scheduled for 8 hours and 20 minutes flight time, with an arrival time of 6 a.m. local time into Seoul. 
However, due to less than average headwinds expected on this particular day, the flight was actually expected to take seven hours and 53 minutes. Huh. This actually caused a problem that because the customs facility at Gempo did not open until oh. 6 a.m. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so What do they do? Just stay on the airplane for an hour? Because no, of, they just don't leave because of right this, on time. Right. Because of this, the flight was delayed leaving Anchorage for 30 minutes. That was a scheduled delay because of the arrival time needed into Gempo. Dang. So they just stayed on the ground and anchored a little bit longer, which nobody probably cared because they were all asleep. (laughs) (laughs) At least I would hope so. Maybe not, because New York time by this point, it is like 7 a.m. Oh, Oh. people are totally up. (laughs) Man, I didn't realize how bad traveling through time zones was. Oh, and it gets so much worse. I got screwed up when we came back from Europe. And and Europe isn't even that bad compared to this, which we will talk about in just a moment. Because, well, as we go through the story, the times just start. Eventually, I switched to UTC time because at some point it just doesn't matter. I just stay in UTC. <laughs> and that's fine. But I will tell you what the local time is eventually where they are and how that relates. Okay. Anyways, the flight called the Anchorage Tower at 3.50 a.m. with receipt of the ATIS Information Sierra, or Automated Terminal Information System for anybody who forgot. This is your weather information, no TAMs, anything related to the airport. And then they requested the en route clearance to Seoul. The flight was filed to fly the number eight standard instrument departure. Every airport has standard instrument departures. That was on their plan. was the number eight option. They're usually named, not numbered. Do you have a fun example of one from Denver? Coors. The Ah. Coors six departure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In Denver, we have the Coors six departure, which flies, yes, of course, over Golden. Thank you. Obviously. But... That's where the course factory is, for those of you who are not from Colorado. Yes, and these departures usually have related things on their... Waypoints. Waypoints, so like bubbly, things like that. So it's it's a whole thing. Then they were to proceed to the Bethel Vortac, which is just a, a VOR along their route, mm-hmm. which was on route J501, so this is a highway in the sky. I don't normally give this much description. We'll get into it's pertinent information. We'll get into why later. <laughs> yes, this is all important information. And also, I thought it was a good time to bring up like this is how airplanes are actually rooted in the sky. They aren't just flying A to B, yeah, straight line. Wherever. Like, <laughs> there is a lot of thought put into this for a lot of reasons. And actually, if you follow Flight Radar Twenty Four on social media, they'll frequently post images of from their app of what like overseas travel looks like at mm-hmm. any given moment and a couple of days ago like there was a serious tailwind going over the atlantic and you just see like chains of planes yep. all taking the exact same path right because normally over the atlantic there's like 18 routes or something like that they can take they were all in like two right because because of the the expected winds, which definitely reduces fuel use usage and allows them to make a lot more profit, get people there quicker. They just compact them into like three routes over the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a lot of traffic, though. So, yes, highways in the sky. So, yes, highways in the sky. So we're talking all about this, but this is how things actually are structured with every flight we talk about. That's an instrument filed flight plan. Yeah, you have to follow a certain path. You can't just go wherever you want. Right. So from the J-501, they would then fly Route R-20 over the North Pacific, or NOPAC, till reporting point NIPI, N-I-P-P-I, where the flight would enter Tokyo Oceanic Airspace and later Tegu Airspace for the arrival into Seoul. So this is... 
their planned route all the way from Anchorage to Seoul. This route included two planned altitude changes, one at flight level 330 after passing waypoint Nux, which their original planned altitude is flight level 310, so 31,000 feet. They were then planned to change to 330 at waypoint Nux, N-U-K-K-S, and another to flight level 350 after passing waypoint Nippy. Mm-hmm. The flight was cleared to Seoul at flight level 310 and was assigned a transponder code of 6072. This is also a normal thing. This tells them you're on an instrument flight plan and you're being tracked by air traffic control. 3.58 a.m. local time. The flight was cleared for takeoff on runway 32 at Anchorage. The flight was airborne at 4 a.m. Radar contact was established after takeoff and the flight was cleared to climb to flight level 310 while maintaining a heading of 220 degrees direct to Bethel when able. That was the air traffic controller's instruction to the airplane. Mm-hmm. Fly direct to Bethel. Any questions so far? That was a lot. <laughs> no. There, <laughs> there's a lot of confusion. So far. <laughs> okay. That might become a lot more confusing later. At 4.27 a.m., radar service was terminated. So now it's 27 minutes after takeoff. As the flight flew into an area without radar control. It's probably the middle of the ocean. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> Fun it's, fact. Well, oh. Kind of. It's it's over the middle of the North Pacific where there's nothing. Yeah. Nothing. L- literally nothing. Nothing. So, that's a thing. The aircraft then reported passing Bethel at 4.49 a.m. and estimated being at the next reporting point of Navy, N-A-B-I-E, at 5.30 a.m. local time or 14.30 UTC. From here on, I'll go into UTC time. Just going to be easier. The flight then reported in again at Navy at 14.32 UTC still maintaining flight level 310. So two different times they reported being at Navy, two minutes apart. Mind you, this means they're still in contact with air traffic control. control. In Anchorage? Yes, in Anchorage. Yep, They're still technically over U.S. airspace at this point. The flight estimated reaching the next point of NEVA, N-E-E-V-A, at 1549 UTC, so about an hour later, a little over. The flight's reports were not able to be heard by the Anchorage ARTCC, Air Route Traffic Control Center. So another Korean Airlines flight, Flight 015, relayed this message for Flight 007. Korean Airlines 015 was also flying from Anchorage to Seoul, but had departed 14 minutes after Korean Airlines 007. I don't know where their origination point was, but Anchorage is just their normal stopover. Yeah, where they go to... So I don't know if it was like they came from Boston, maybe Chicago, I don't know, something like that. They, they're stopped over in Anchorage as well. And they left 14 minutes behind 007. Remember them. They're vaguely important. They are important. We'll talk about them quite a bit throughout this. This meant that they were slightly behind 007 yeah. and were closer to Anchorage. So for some reason, their radio seemed to be stronger overall. And they just had better contact with Anchorage. Do you know what airplane they were on? They were also 747. They were was identical. Was it a 200? Yeah, it was identical. Mm-hmm. I was wondering maybe it was a plane different plane but nope everything was pretty much identical between the two airplanes they just for some reason had a better radio contact with air traffic control something could have been up with the radio on 007 but yeah they relayed the message it happens a lot though like there's sometimes where planes have to do that it's not that weird yep right the flight tried again at 1444 utc to contact the air traffic control to report an updated estimate of reaching neva at 1553 but this time, they contacted a different frequency in order to pass the message. So instead of using the very high frequency, they were using high-frequency radio to contact Anchorage flight services, which apparently has a much better range, and they were actually able to talk to somebody in Anchorage at that point. That said, they went back to the Air Route Traffic Control Center frequency to try to make the next one, 
which was at 1600 UTC. So that's 4 o'clock p.m. UTC yeah. time, for those of you that don't know military time. And at that point, they reported being over Neva at flight level 310, with an estimated time of reaching the next reporting point of Nippy. It was about an hour later. But at 17.08 UTC time, and 015 again had to relay this message to Anchorage ARTCC. Six minutes after making that message, at 16.06 UTC, the Anchorage ARTCC then instructed the flight to climb to flight level 330. Once, Korean Airlines 015 had climbed from 330. So they had climbed away from that altitude, so basically they're chasing each other right. upward. I'm so uncomfortable right now. Well, they do that so that they don't hit each other. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yes. But like, okay, just as soon as Nick said that they left kind of close to each other, like 14 minutes apart, I was like, I feel like there's been at least one, if not a couple of episodes where that did not end well. So I would not have said vaguely important if I didn't mean vaguely important. They're not that level of important. Okay. Yeah. Thankfully, they're, that is... They're not going to hit each other. Kay. Not the issue here. Kay. No. Thank you, I'm more comfortable now. Yeah. They're still important <laughs> in all of this. That is not what happens in this episode. Okay. They're still important in all of this, and the fact that they kept radio communications is actually interesting. We'll talk about that Okay. later on. 1709 UTC, four hours and nine minutes into the flight. The flight established high-frequency communications with Tokyo Radio and reported passing Nippy two minutes prior while maintaining flight level 330. The flight was then estimated to reach Noka, N-O-K-K-A, at 1826 UTC time. At 18.15 UTC, over an hour after the last position report, the flight requested a climb to flight level 350. Five minutes later, Korean Airlines 015 had climbed to flight level 370, so the Tokyo Air Traffic Controller was able to clear flight 007 to climb to 350, their final altitude, right, where they were going to be at. The flight reached flight level 350 at 18.23 UTC time, 18.26 UTC, which is 6.12 a.m. local time where they are now, which... We'll talk about it in a minute, which is around the Soviet island of Sakhalin. That means it was only three minutes after they reached flight level 350. Yeah. They were flying around the island of Sakhalin, which splits the Sea of Okhotsk and the Sea of Japan. The flight crew had been chatting with each other, as well as the flight crew of Korean Airlines 015, over the previous few minutes after initiating their ascent to 350, when suddenly the airplane was shaken violently and a rapid decompression started in the cabin. Out of nowhere. The airplane quickly lost control and began climbing rapidly till it reached flight level 380 before it rolled and began descending rapidly toward the sea. At 1827 UTC, so just a minute later, the flight crew tried to inform the air traffic controller, Tokyo ATC, that they were experiencing a rapid decompression and descent, but the transmission was too noisy and weak to be understood. Over the next 15 minutes, the air traffic controller and Korean Airlines 015 attempted to make contact with the flight, but received no answer from Korean Airlines 007. An eyewitness on a Japanese fishing boat heard an aircraft that appeared to be getting louder. He then saw a flash on the horizon to the south, southeast, followed by another flash, and heard some loud booms before it went silent and disappeared out of sight. At that time, it was presumed basically that the aircraft had broken up on its descent, mm -hmm. while in a rapid descent before striking the sea in the dark. Search and rescue operations were immediately initiated jointly by South Korea, Japan, and the USA, and separately by the Soviet Union. You might note this is the Cold War. Mm. Yeah, this is during the Cold War era. So Toward the end, but still. So they were not participating, they were doing their own search and rescue operation. That said... About six hours after the disappearance of the aircraft, the South Korean government issued an announcement that the plane had been forced to land abruptly by the Soviets and that all passengers and crew were safe. 
That was an enormous misstep by the South Korean government. I didn't even know that happened, and I know what happened for this episode, so... Yeah! That's really disappointing. Come on, Korea. Get your butt together. Because at 10.45 a.m. local time in D.C., on September 1st, so later the same day, the U.S. Secretary of State, George P. Schultz, held a press conference where he revealed to the world that the U.S. had intercepted Soviet communications showing that the aircraft had been shot down by a Soviet fighter jet. This event. Okay. I was definitely not alive for this, but I've heard of this. Okay. Yep. Not a good thing. Not a good it, thing. It's a, it's a, it's a problem. It's, it's, it's a huge problem. Be it that this is in the middle of the Cold War, this is no small accusation. No. The Soviets initially denied having shot down Flight 007. However, within five days, the Soviets backtracked on that statement at a UN presentation on the crash. They claimed that the aircraft was shot down in Soviet airspace after ignoring warnings. So they claimed that it was basically warranted. The search efforts continued, but there was not much to be found as the exact location that the airplane impacted the sea was not known. The airplane had not been in any Allied radar area at the time that it was shot down, and the Soviets were claiming not to know the location either. It was quickly deemed apparent that there were no survivors, however. All 269 on board perished in the crash, unfortunately. I mean, when you have a, a plane traveling very fast toward a body of water. Yep. Most likely. Yeah. Yep. Eight days after the crash, some human remains and other articles such as clothing and small aircraft parts began washing ashore in Hokkaido, Japan. It was presumed that they were ending up there having washed in from Soviet waters due to currents. But this is coming from the Sea of Japan. So they kind of have an idea that it was on the south end of Sakhalin Island. That is pertinent. This continued for some time. Water searches would be continued as well. However, by all parties for quite some time, just like everything washing up on shore. Is that, what, that all you got? That's it for now. There is so much more on the search and rescue operations. We're not going to get into I mean, if you really want to read on it, please read on the, the Wikipedia page. But most of it's not pertinent. It's about which vessels were where, how many people oh, were involved. Oh, there's a ridiculous amount of information on the Wikipedia page. It is absurd. And it's unnecessary because really all we know is that they were searching for the aircraft. But there was they some very key things. We'll wait till we get there. Happening there's in the meantime. There's going to be a little bit of rage on this episode. There's some things I'm so excited. happening in the meantime. <laughs> Even because I know what happened. Oh, God. All right. So this investigation was a mess. Yes. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Cold War. Yeah. Yes. So per the ICAO, the investigation is to be performed by the country where the aircraft crashed. So technically the Soviet Union. Yeah, Correct. that's not happening. No. The country of registration, South Korea. The country of the air traffic control under which the aircraft was flying. Japan. And the country of aircraft manufacture. U.S. Oh. <laughs> this is not a good combination at the time. Uh, yeah. No one no. there liked to get along with each other. No. At all. Furthermore, any country who had citizens on board had a right to participate in the investigation. Oh, yeah, that's right. So... Australia, Hong Kong, Canada, Dominican Republic, India, Iran, Japan, Malaysia, the Philippines, South Korea, Sweden, China, Thailand, UK, US, and Vietnam had one <laughs> refugee from South Vietnam in the US. So, there's a lot of people who could say, I want to be involved. Initially, the NTSB GO team based in Alaska was getting ready to deploy. I mean, 
they're relatively close. Yep. Sort of, not really at all. Mm. When they received orders from NTSB headquarters in D.C. that the U.S. State Department would be taking over the investigation. Because it was deemed to not be an accident. Right. Which was later confirmed by the USSR that they did indeed shoot down the aircraft, as Nick had mentioned. All of that also really became a big sticking point because there was a senator on board. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. That makes it so much messier. Yes. Yeah. So U.S. State Department is like, hey, we'll do that. Actually, that didn't happen. Given the very mm, tense political climate understatement of the century. The U.S. State Department figured it would probably be best if an independent investigation was conducted by an, smart or- thing to do. by an organization that did not report to any one given country. And that narrowed it down to the authority who did conduct the official investigation. The U.N. called on the International Civil Aviation Organization, or the ICAO, to conduct the investigation. Yep. It's a good idea. And mm-hmm. this, that's so rare. We really never, I think this is the first time we've ever done an ICAO Full report yeah, for this, as well as this just doesn't happen. So that's why I think they may not have included ours is because the ICO doesn't do investigations. Right. No. They still structured it the way they're supposed to because they are in charge of that structure. Yes. Yeah. They're the so- one who say, this is what a report looks like. Please do it this way. Maybe we should conform to our own standards. Right. So there was actually a precedent for such an investigation by the ICAO as they had previously investigated the shootdown of Libyan Arab Airlines Flight 114, which was shot down by Israeli F-4s over the Sinai Peninsula. So it wasn't completely out of the ordinary, but still strange compared to everything else we've covered before. The biggest downside of having an independent investigation such as this, when compared to having, say, the U.S. State Department investigate, is that the ICAO can't subpoena evidence. Information, testimonies, none of it. Right. So all evidence had to be given voluntarily. Which you can imagine. We're talking about the USSR here. Meaning that any evidence that the USSR squirreled away and didn't want to share was impossible to retrieve. Right. They just flat out said no. So any radar data, intercepts, or ATC data that the USSR had was not available. That's okay. We'll just use the black boxes, right? That should be plenty of information. But you have to find them, Christy. Well, wait, (laughs) there's more. So the primary reason that they were still performing such search and rescue, quote unquote, operations turned into mostly just search because we were looking for the airplane for the black boxes. Yeah. And because they couldn't find the location, they couldn't find the black boxes. They did this for 10 weeks and they didn't find it. Was this before they had locators? No, I don't know. I don't think so. But that doesn't matter. No. Well, that's why it doesn't matter. So I know, Nick. You need to be able to be in range of the black boxes to pick up the locator beacon signal. And if they crashed in, say, um... Soviet Russia. Yeah. Well, and you'll also probably have to at least have a bit of an idea of where to start. Yeah. Right. Usually. Yeah. Russia's like, they are not going to whole... tell you where we shot that down. You have no idea where in the ocean to start. Well, even then... they were kind of like, we're not entirely sure where that got shot down. That's what they were saying. Yes. Well, yeah, that's what they were saying. Right. I'm sorry. I cannot believe that any military is going to shoot down a plane and not have an idea where they sent their their missile or their, their airplane that shot it down or whatever was used to take that plane down. They're not going to just not know where they sent Oh, that. hold on to that. <laughs> that gets important later. Good so, Very so, good thought. So, so let me keep going. Okay. <laughs> Without wreckage 
or black boxes, investigators didn't have a whole lot to go on. As part of the Soviet statement that they shot down the plane, they said that it was flying over the Sakhalin Island in Soviet airspace at the time of the shootdown. But that makes no sense. Because it's not supposed to be there. The flight was supposed to be following the R-20 corridor, a highway in the sky, you might say, marked by waypoints that should have led them straight to Seoul. So what were they doing in Soviet airspace? Right. I mean, Are, this was... Do we have a map of this? Yes. Okay. That's, we'll why, that's my one picture. Okay. Yeah. Give me... Let me get there. Wait. We'll get there. But this is why, like, obviously that was a red flag in my story. That, first of all, they were flying over Soviet Russia and this was not a good thing. Mm-mm. Second of all, this is their justification for why they shot down the airplane. And so most of the world wasn't necessarily arguing, yeah, you're like you're wrong about that. They were like, yeah, sure, okay, it was in your airspace, but also Why? civil aviation and civil aircraft are still usually protected. They're not supposed to yeah, be shot down. Exactly. It's, a, it's a passenger aircraft. You're not supposed to shoot a passenger aircraft out of the sky. That's the so big thing of war. You do not involve civilians. civilians. That's why we've had such a big problem with what's been going on in yeah. Ukraine. Yep. Yeah, he's that, like, let me murder all the civilians. No, you don't do that. Right, don't. you don't. It's been a law behind war for, like, centuries. Yeah, we'll talk about that later, too. So, let me finish where I was going. Where was I going? Are we even sure they were in Soviet airspace? Well, we don't have any radar data, do we? No. So, investigators interviewed another Korean Airlines flight that was mayhaps right behind them. And they revealed that a rather strange conversation had transpired. Flight 007 said that they had a strong tailwind of 35 knots. The other Korean Airlines flight had a headwind. Of 15 knots. They're that's only supposed right. to be 14 minutes apart. Yeah, that's not That right doesn't change that fast. Not, not usually. Nope. No. It was at this time that the U.S. military stepped in and said, hey, listen, we got the super top secret passive radar that can track all aircraft around the globe. Don't question it, but here's the flight path for 007. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're giving it to you, but like, don't tell anybody. Don't ask any questions from. about it. <laughs> Here it is. You no don't questions. know where you got this from. Yes. Uh, okay. Here thanks. it is. No questions, please. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, I guess. Hey, Lieutenant Spock. Remember the no questions <laughs> thing? Yes. Yes. No questions. Okay. So this information showed that the flight was off course for the entire flight. Oh, no. I was kind of giving that away, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. I'll let I you I mean, it was continue. definitely off Time-wise, the entire time, increasingly. You picked on that. You picked up on that. Yeah, I'm I was, glad I you was picked wondering. Up on that. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because you are correct, yeah. and that was the big dead giveaway, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Okay, okay. At the time of the shootdown, they were 350 miles or 560 kilometers north of their flight plan, <gasps> and they had already flown in and out of Soviet airspace once and had just reflown into it when it was shot down. Yep. So we are now showing Paige a map of their planned route versus their actual route. So this is the straight line map, and it's hard to get an idea, but this is a curved, so you can actually see the the latitudes, the curved latitudes. Yeah. So north is all the way up here at nearly the top of the picture, top right of the picture. Mm -hmm. So Anchorage is down here on the right. The straight line across with all the waypoints, that's supposed to be their route. The dotted line... Is where they actually oh, ended up. Yeah. Oh, they got off immediately. Yes. Almost, yeah. Yep. Oh, no. Correct. So, was something wrong with the navigation system, 
mayhaps? Investigators went to the state of Washington. Washington. To get the help of... Boeing. The aircraft manufacturer. Together, they performed simulations to try and determine what may have happened. I mean, what the heck else are you going to do at this point? Yeah, because you don't have any other information. When preparing for a flight, the first officer enters the waypoints into the nav system, which the captain then goes back in and verifies. Check and balance. That's how aviation works. Right. Upon receiving clearance to taxi and take off, the crew then does so on the heading mode of the autopilot, meaning that they would fly on a set magnetic heading until the autopilot system is switched to the inertial navigation system mode, or INS, as I will refer to it henceforth, which would then have it begin following the preset waypoints. Just to double check, investigators listened to the ATC footage from Anchorage to see if anything went weird with the clearance or the takeoff, and everything was normal. So they didn't, like, try some last minute, hey, we're going to adjust this. Nope, everything went as expected. Do you explain how the INS works? Would you care to? Yeah, so the INS is a pretty simple system. It's actually pretty rudimentary, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, actually. So the heading mode is a manually entered thing. It just literally puts the airplane on a magnetic heading. Okay. The INS... They input a series of waypoints. In the form of coordinates. In the form of coordinates. And what it knows about those coordinates is based on where the airplane starts. So what they also have to do is put in the exact position of the airplane at startup. So they they do this in, and it's the first officer's responsibility for Korean Airlines to put in the initial position. And they put in the initial position as Anchorage. They did do that. So investigators tested several different failure methods regarding the navigation system and determined that one of two things happened. And this is what was made the probable cause in the report that they released four months after the accident. Which is pretty freaking quick. That's very, yeah. uh, very... I mean, I think they were like, we should really figure out what happened. Also, we have yeah. nothing to work with. Yes. So. so either the waypoints were entered incorrectly, which is the more likely option, to be perfectly honest... Or they forgot to change it from the heading mode to the INS mode, which is less likely given how experienced the crew are. Not that we have the numbers to show that they're experienced, but they are... They're flying a 747. They're they're, pretty experienced. (laughs) Yeah. But this doesn't entirely answer the question of why the USSR would have just shot down a civilian plane out of the blue, even if it had flown into Soviet airspace. It was at this point that the U.S. military stepped in, again... And said, hey, so we kind of sort of had a U.S. Air Force RC-135, a Boeing 707, basically. Reconnaissance configured. Doing figure eights just outside of Soviet airspace, waiting to watch a Soviet missile test. It would have been kind of near the Soviet border at the same time as 007, and they may have been indistinguishable on Soviet radar. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, and if they already as you said, accidentally made it into Soviet airspace once, Russia was, or excuse me, the USSR was probably thinking like, oh, you've already been taunt, like you crossed over, you've been taunting us. Oh, it's... Screw you. Well, here's the other part, though, that pisses me off. Because there are liveries on this aircraft, and when you're in a fighter jet, you can see the livery. I will touch on that later. Livery, sorry, Kevin. Yes, livery. I will touch on that later. Okay, I just want to make it clear that... It's definitely not a reconnaissance airplane when it's painted in colors or an airline. However, the Soviets probably thought the 747 was a spy plane, and if they saw it as a civilian aircraft, that might have been a disguise to be a spy plane. That would have been really smart of the U.S. to do. 
But it's not a U.S. like airline though. Like you but know what I mean? The Cold War. Like, I realized that we played literally dirty. Literally thinking that everyone was playing dirty against each other. I, right. I know. So, I know. I'm I'll, still there with you. And I will. Still, I will still touch on that later. Both aircraft still. are quad jet engine aircraft yep. as well. So, so they had reason to believe. Yep. 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 The investigators tried to get access to the fighter pilot. To ask him, did you know it was a civilian plane? But they their request was con- denied. Yeah. Of course. And this is how things stood for a very long time. Following the publication of that report, the ICAO condemned the Soviet Union for the attack. Yes, thank you. And the report led to an amendment in 1984, though it didn't take effect till 1998, that, quote, the contracting states recognize that every state must refrain from resorting to the use of weapons against civil aircraft in flight and that, in case of interception, the lives of persons on board and the safety of aircraft must not be endangered, end quote. We might add that this has not been followed by even Multiple, yes. (laughs) Who shot down MH17 over Ukraine? Listen... In 2014. Right. That actual rules, guidelines. Yes. So I guess we haven't talked about it to this point. That flight was on our schedule to cover in late February. And Mm -hmm. we deemed that a not wise decision to cover. We moved it later. Much later. The end of our list at that point. With the events of late February. If you remember what happened this year in late February. And is a still ongoing thing. We will, once that comes up in our schedule again, we will reevaluate. Right. I know there's people, there were several people that requested that we do that episode and we will eventually cover it. We just thought it was in bad taste. The Ukraine has been unfortunately circled by such things because there was also the Ukraine International Airlines that was shot down. Yeah, that's also on our schedule. We did that one. Yeah, we did. Oh, did we already? Yeah, yeah, we did. That was before. We're at 148 episodes. I don't remember what we have and haven't covered anymore. (laughs) That one happened shortly after we started the podcast. I don't think so. Yes. It was the first one we covered that we had actually, that had happened since we started the podcast. Anyway, so in the United States, the American Association for Families of Korean Airline Flight 007 victims came to be and pursued three different U.S. administrations for answers. Which, of course, you'd want answers. Yes. Right? Like, what the heck? (laughs) After the turn of the decade, the Cold War ended, and the USSR was dissolved. The association I just mentioned, and I'm not going to rename, persuaded U.S. Senators Ted Kennedy, Sam Nunn, Carl Levin, and Bill Bradley to write to the last Soviet president, Mikhail Gorbachev, and ask for information on the flight. As press censorship began to subside, reports came out from Soviet press that the Soviet military knew where the wreckage was and had the black boxes. The entire time. They literally put them in a safe. I'm not surprised literally at all. Honestly, I won't be surprised if it doesn't end up being that Gorbachev was like, actually, I ordered that. He did. On December 10th, 1991, U.S. Senator Jesse Helms of the Committee on Foreign Relations wrote to Boris Yeltsin for information on Flight 007, which had Congressman Larry McDonald on board. Yep. The new Russian government wanted to distance themselves from their past. So the new administration made some shocking statements. One month after the accident, the Soviet government had found the wreckage at the bottom of the ocean and were able to retrieve both black boxes. 
President Yeltsin also revealed a memo from November of 1983 from KGB head Viktor Cheberkov and Defense Minister Dmitry Ustinov to Yuri Andropov, reading that, quote, In the third decade of October this year, the equipment in question, the recorder of in-flight parameters and the recorder of voice communications by the flight crew with ground air traffic surveillance stations and between themselves, was brought aboard a search vessel and forwarded to Moscow by air for decoding and translation at the Air Force Scientific Research Institute, end quote. So not only did they have them, they also got all the information off of them. They locked them away for almost 10 years in some dude's office. Literally in a safe in someone's office. Yep. There was a safe in the wall. If you watch the Air Disasters episode, there's a safe in the wall. That's well, where they were kept. And to be fair, they figured that if this information became public while this Cold War was very much in the middle of happening, that this was be all end all war. Oh, yeah. I well, mean, yeah, this that's why was. They hit it. Yeah. They because, were like, no, we know lied. nothing. We know nothing. If it had come out before the dissolution of the USSR that Gorbachev had ordered this, it would have been all at war. Right. We would have gone from a cold war to a very, very hot one very quickly. Yes. So I took a couple of notes. They're not direct quotes. I failed to write the direct quotes. I can't type that fast. From the episode that quoted whosever office it was. I can't remember whose office it was, but he said, I had them in a safe in my office. It was a big international secret. It bothered me immensely. You may not understand it, but this is the happiest day of my life when they got released. Well, because if it got found imagine? out that it was in his office, he's target number one. But he also has that weight. Like, he knows there were 269 souls on Can board. you imagine? Also, he's probably number one hated man by many people. On Earth. I don't know whose office it was in, so I'm not going to just say that right. he's the number one hated person. Anyway. Whoever yeah, he was. Picked sure some was random safe. dude and been like, you're a good fall guy. We're going to put this in a safe in your Well, office. and right. the USSR, if you remember anything about anything that happened within the USSR for a long time, they oh, lied yeah. about everything. Oh, yeah. When Chernobyl happened. I was just going to bring that up. Lies. Nothing happened. Everything's fine. And they're like, well, why are we getting levels in Switzerland of this ridiculous <laughs> right. amount of radiation? No, something happened. And right. eventually they couldn't hide it anymore. I actually have a friend who was in school in East Germany at the time. She was doing exchange school. And the Geiger counters on the outside of, they put them outside of school windows, sorry, words, to measure the radiation levels. And they were going off. Like crazy all day, all the way out in East Germany. Yeah. They literally the could not leave their school for like weeks. I'm so And good. Russia's like, no, 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 it's no, fine. Nothing, nothing happened. Nothing happened. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. Lots We're just exposing the entire okay. population of Europe to <sighs> immense amounts of radiation. Poor it's Ukraine. Fine, it's fine. Ukraine doesn't deserve any of this. No. no. So back to the relevant Soviet lies. <laughs> <laughs> they locked the black boxes in some dude's office for 10 years until September 11th. Of 1992. Mm-hmm. Okay. Different year. Yep. When President Boris Yeltsin acknowledged they had them and would hand them over. In a big official ceremony at the Kremlin in October of 1992, with a delegation of families and U.S. State Department officials in attendance, partial transcripts of the CVR were handed to the Korean Airlines family delegation. In November, Yeltsin handed over the two recorder containers to President Ro Tae-woo of Korea, but not the tape. Much. It looked really like ceremonial and crap, and it was a farce. The tapes were later actually given to the ICAO, which, yes, is probably the correct thing to do. Yep. After the ICAO voted to reopen the investigation, the renewed investigation took place in. Any guesses? 
NTSB? Washington. Washington? No. Yeah. Paris. Oh. Of all places. Huh. I knew that. Well, good for you. <laughs> so that the BEA could transcribe the tapes, since they're also technically not involved. And the new investigators included Japan, South Korea, the United States, and perhaps most surprisingly, an avionics expert from the Russian Federation. Yeah. Ta-da! 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 We can all work together, hand in hand. Or so we thought. I mean... I love how we had that farce for a while. We can all be friends. No, we can't. No, we can't. So, on May 28th of 1993, the ICAO presented its second report to the UN, which all information henceforth in my script is from. The CVR was identified as being the same model installed on the accident aircraft, and the serial number was verified as well. So, we're looking at the real... Yeah, they didn't give, like, a fake CVR and FDR. (laughs) Well, there were questions. Well, and to be fair, yeah, of course. Yeah. You've been keeping these for 10 years. It had structural and corrosion damage in addition to the components inside being dismantled. We kind of knew that happened. Mm-hmm. The corrosion was consistent with immersion in seawater. I was going to say seawater. No. Okay, the, the structural damage was consistent with being subjected to a large distributed force, such as a high-speed water impact. What do you know? I found a discrepancy here between the report and the Mayday episode. Of course. Surprise, surprise. The episode reported that some breaks in the tape were found where the Soviets had spliced the tape. According to the episode, this raised suspicion over whether or not the Soviets had removed data, though it is normal for a tape to break on impact. Yes. And they eventually determined that nothing was removed from the tape. Conversely, the ICAO report said that only one splice was found, which is the original manufacturer splice necessary to, like, cut the tape and loop it. So there's right. going to be a splice. Mm-hmm. And that's the only splice they found according to the ICAO. So this could once again be Mayday making... Being a dramatic... Yes, making drama. Taking, taking drama where it doesn't need to be. Taking dramatic liberties. Anyway, the BEA played back the CVR and representatives from Korean airlines as well as a Korean translator hired by the French worked to translate the audio from Korean to English. Because most of us don't speak Korean. The first nine minutes contained casual conversation on the flight deck, as well as public address or PA announcements. Yep. At 1822 and 56 seconds UTC, the flight reported reaching flight level 350, and just over three minutes later, a rapid series of loud noises was heard on the cockpit area microphone, which was interpreted to be the moment of missile detonation. There is no indication that the crew had any idea their location was amiss or that anything was out of the ordinary at all. They didn't talk do, about it. Do we get into what happened? Yes. The flashes? Yes. Okay. Now for what we've been waiting for, the flight data recorder. In this case, once again, both the model and serial number matched what was on the maintenance logs for the accident aircraft. It's the actual FDR. Once the playback was done, it became blatantly obvious what had occurred. After takeoff, the magnetic heading for the flight remained the same, meaning that the crew had to have forgotten to switch the autopilot from heading to INS. Which is what I said earlier was the Least less likely, because yeah. it would be a really stupid mistake. But it's what actually happened. An appropriate heading was selected to head towards the Bethel Vortac, and neither the flight director nor the autopilot and enunciator panels would have indicated that the heading modes were in operation. So there was nothing to warn them that they messed up. After the missile detonated, which was marked by a tiny loss of data, as well as an increase in vertical acceleration, 
a maximum rudder deflection was recorded when it had previously been near neutral, indicating that one of the two cables or their attachments from the rudder pedal to hydraulic actuators had failed. The horizontal stabilizer was recorded well out of its maximum range of movement, indicating yet another failure. Initially, the aircraft pitched up and vertical acceleration increased to 1.2 Gs, but there was no control column movement, and then the aircraft rolled to right wing down. The cabin altitude warning was heard, and the aircraft was climbing at 7,000 feet per minute before the control column was moved forward. The vertical acceleration reduced to 0.82 Gs, and the engines reduced power. The aircraft rolled to left wing down, and a crew member reported that the speed brakes were coming out, though nothing showed that that actually happened. Right. The roll angle reached 23 degrees with larger erratic control wheel movements. Then the autopilot was changed to manual. They reached an altitude of 38,250 feet with an airspeed of 220 knots before descending with a descent rate of 12,000 feet per minute. That's not small. And an airspeed of 284 knots. The crew was fighting to reverse the left wing down orientation, which had reached 52 degrees left wing down before decreasing. The crew radioed Tokyo Radio saying rapid compressions and descent to 10,000, and it sounded like they were wearing their oxygen masks. The vertical acceleration reached 2 Gs as the flight recovered to level flight and rolled to right wing down, which increased to 49 degrees right wing down with a heading of 200 degrees and an altitude of 33,850 feet, an airspeed of 282 knots, and a descent rate of 5,000 feet per minute when both recorders ceased at the same time, indicating an aircraft breakup. So you may think like, oh, but why did that happen if they came to wings level? You did... This is a complicated set of math, but a very simple physics problem. When the airplane goes from basically straight nose down and left, and it rolls back to level and flat, suddenly you have a bunch of pressure underneath those wings, and what happens? The airplane snaps. Yep, makes sense. When the wings snap, unfortunately, so does basically everything else, since the wing spars in a 747 are large. Okay, so I got a question. Yes. That's why you're here. Yes. Yay. Okay. So since I don't remember if you guys covered it or not. So the waypoints that they're uh-huh. supposed to check in at. I thought this might come up. How, like what, how are they supposed to know they got there? Yep. It's, it's a, like, so, uh, I will get there. Uh, yeah, okay, give cool. me like three paragraphs. Okay, cool. I thought this might Small come paragraphs. up and that's, that's a great point because if you didn't talk about it, I was going to. Okay. Okay. So investigators later surmised that the aircraft had the following damage that led to the struggle to control an eventual in-flight breakup. Quote, A, failure of a rudder control cable or one of its attachments. B, failure of a crossover cable between the left inboard and right outboard elevators. C, damage to the synchro monitoring the stabilizer angle for the digital flight data recorder that was mounted just aft of the stabilizer center box or of its mechanical installation or wiring. D, failure of hydraulic systems numbers 1, 2, and 3. Ooh. This is also kind of familiar. (laughs) E, structural damage in the region of the left inboard elevator that significantly reduced its aerodynamic effectiveness and F, puncturing of the pressure cabin with holes in the order of 1.75 square feet. End quote. Now, the question that was raised by Paige was why the crew didn't notice that they were so far off track. It was found that the computer would have continued to display their continued waypoints as if they had been crossing them, when in fact they weren't anywhere near them, but they were perpendicular to them. Yeah, so they were across from them, so they were at 
a quote unquote correct heading, mm-hmm. but they weren't where they were supposed to be on that heading. And what tells them that okay. they crossed it is it switches to the next point. Okay. Because the computer was just automatically then switching to the next waypoint, they assumed, oh, we just crossed. But for some reason, it wasn't occurring in their mind, man, we crossed that really late. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, but it's something the computer tells them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, more on that. Quote, Reasonable forward time estimates were possible in the off-track condition because the INS calculated time to go along the desired track and not from the actual position to the position of the next waypoint. The time would therefore run towards zero as the next fictitious waypoint was approached, end quote. So basically, the computer was telling them, it's going to take this long from you to go from this waypoint to the next waypoint instead of it will take you this long from where you are to the next waypoint. So it was always going to zero. Right. But then it would probably just stay there until they actually crossed. No, it didn't. Like, it would go to zero as they crossed perpendicular to it. So they had no way of really knowing that they weren't at the actual waypoint. Right. Hmm. The crew was very close to realizing their error during the exchange with the other Korean Airlines flight when they discussed the difference between their wind situations. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things where... You're like, you were so close. You were so close. You almost figured it out, but you didn't. But even then, it was already too late. Yeah. What they didn't know is they had a fighter jet already on their tail. Yep. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Well, and so I don't actually have a good point to talk about this, but the Soviets had already scrambled fighter jets the first time they entered Soviet airspace, but the fighter jets were too slow to reach them before they went back out into international airspace. So do we know how early into their flight they initially entered Soviet airspace? Like how so, long were they being followed? This is a complicated This is a complicated question because you'll have to look at the map for this. Yeah. But I can't answer this. And it's pretty apparent actually here because they highlighted the Soviet airspace. But they Soviet what they what they actually highlighted was the Soviet air traffic control. The path that they normally would take stays just outside of yeah. Soviet control, which are these boxes. Oh. Each one oh. of these, the FIR, that's an instrument, a radio. Oh, okay. So they radio had control area. not so been out there for very long before. They Oops. were in Soviet air, technically Soviet-controlled airspace for a long time, but they're over international waters, which is considered a no-go. Mm-hmm. They cannot be fired upon. Yeah. Where they were... In Soviet, actual Soviet airspace where they can be fired upon. There was a name for that. That place that they flew through. It's right here. It's It starts with a K. Uh, yes, Kamachetsky. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, which is the big giant peninsula right here that okay. stretches out of Soviet Russia. And then they flew over. This is the island. Oh. So this they got scrambled upon, but they never found the jet. And then by, okay, gotcha. Okay. Yep. So... The ICAO was still unable to interview the fighter pilot, but they were given articles that were published by Izvestia in January of 1991, who had extensive interviews with the fighter pilot, and these were confirmed as being authentic by the Russian Federation. So, Gennady Asipovich was the fighter pilot that night. He reported that 1983 had been a difficult year for Soviet interceptor pilots, as there had been numerous intrusions into Soviet airspace by U.S. military aircraft in the Far East, I should mention. On August 31st, he was based at Sokol, Sakhalin Island, when at 1800 UTC, he was ordered to be airborne. 
Eight minutes later, he was told of an aircraft violating Soviet airspace, which he saw through thin clouds and described as a flying dot with its rotating beacon on. He locked on with his radar sight, staying 13 kilometers behind. He reported to ground command that he was locked on. A short while later, he was ordered to destroy the target, but that order was later rescinded, and he was instead told to match altitude and force it to land. He approached from below and began flashing his navigational lights. He was then ordered to fire warning shots. He fired, allegedly, according to him, more than 200 armor-piercing rounds, but they didn't have tracers, which were these little flare-like lights that are usually used on warning shots to make them more visible. He it's didn't dark. He didn't have tracers equipped, according to him. So how would they even ever have seen them? They, the Russian Federation later argued this point and said that, like, every four rounds one was a tracer. But here's the problem. So, and they, I think they brought this up in the episode, but he's flying behind them. They're flying forward. They're not, they don't have radar on board. Normal military aircraft do. Um, so... U.S. military, I should say. I don't know about other military. But the problem is, is if you're firing warning shots from back here and the pilots are up here, and if you've ever seen a 747 or seen windows on a plane in general, they can't really see too much behind them. Also, the cockpit on a 747, for some godforsaken reason, is on the top deck? It is. Yeah. That's dumb. So if you picture it, right, this fighter jet is behind them shooting Warning shots, even if they had lights on them. Into the, pilot, the night. Into the night. And the pilots aren't going to look behind them. Yeah, They can't almost, see behind they them. They can't yeah. see. And so they're like, oh, we fired warning shots. So they can't see. Yeah. <laughs> what he anticipated they would have seen was these lights flying past them. Or that's what should have happened if there were tracer rounds. Kind of up in the air if he had tracers or not. He says he didn't. His country says he did. I'm not going to try to speculate on who's right. From the crew, who, I mean, first of all, didn't even know they were flying in the wrong place anyways. Clearly, they didn't see any of Those could have been yeah. shooting stars for all they freaking knew. Yeah, especially if it's every four rounds. Just mm-hmm. like, oh, If that's oh, what oh. they said happened, right? right? Pretty light going by. Okay. Now, here's one thing that every time I think about this, I'm like, why didn't he just make radio contact? There's a really simple explanation. He would have lost contact with his ground command if he changed his radio. Right. Pretty easy answer to that one. I felt really dumb. It's like, why didn't he just like call and be like, hey, but does you good? But to kind of understand as well, because normally aircraft have multiple radios, so usually you can monitor you both. Can sw- Do yeah. you know anything about Soviet fighter jets? Because I don't. <laughs> to be fair, that. if we know anything about Soviet jets in general, they were very <laughs> rudimentary. They were. They were <laughs> <laughs> They're still rudimentary. Yeah, they, were, they were something ugly. Anyway, so the target then reduced speed to 400 kilometers per hour. This was actually when they were ascending to 35,000 feet. Which is a very unfortunate coincidence. Because he took that as an evasive maneuver. Oh, no. Yeah. This was the moment that he felt, okay, they know I'm here and they're still ignoring me. And it was, at, an it was at this point he was ordered to destroy the target. He was... Um, he maneuvered himself to then be above the target, dropped altitude, armed the missiles, and obtained lock-on. He said the first missile was fired when he was five kilometers from the target, at which time he said he did not notice anything special about the aircraft as he had not studied foreign civilian aircraft. So, okay, understandable, understandable that even if that were the case, oh, maybe they colored it in a different color. If it was a U.S. military aircraft, its lighting beacon would not have been on. Correct. 
But it could have been. He a argued that they disguise themselves as airliners all the time. Well, and you know what? By I don't lighting. know about Cold War era planes, but if you see our airplanes now, they're very plain okay they yes. don't want you to be seen they don't want to be seen <laughs> right they don't want to make anything special and i don't know what the livery livery this was so you today might know korean airlines is having that really pretty bright blue. bright yeah. blue that is not what they had at the no. time see because i was like listen linda all right they have a blue livery that, they did that not. the u.s is not gonna put a blue livery on there no. i don't care if they're trying to make it no different. let no. me pull up a picture of korean airlines but it could have been just white and if that was the case okay it was yeah i mean at that point i'm like all right yeah but did they have something on their tail i mean if he wasn't close enough you wouldn't see their right tail. in the I dark flying airplane to airplane i can tell you for a fact you won't see that yeah <laughs> but again the beacon i don't i just come on yeah so this all is right. this is what they were flying this is what they fly now yeah Much so they have blue now but back then it was very plain jane white a lot of air, airlines actually had that. Kind and so I kind of understand where he's coming from. Like, if you don't study other countries' libraries, if you've been secluded into the USSR for decades. Here's my question. Mm-hmm. And maybe we don't have an answer to this question because it, it was the Soviet Union and who knows. There were two. So there was a military aircraft in the area. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wouldn't you see both? They saw both targets. So they perceived them as switched. Because here's the thing. They both, did cross each other's flight path at one point. Right. Because both aircraft were so close together at one point, they didn't know which one was which. Oh, no. And they just thought that the one that was actually flying into their airspace was more than likely the I reconnaissance like, aircraft. But that one kind of makes sense, especially when you hear like what he just said of, we've had a lot of intrusions by U.S. military aircraft this year. Well, and I can understand, if you know, I, I know we keep saying this, but if you know anything about the USSR and how they work, they don't like not being able to yeah. to protect right. their space. And so when they can't, they get a lot of pressure from higher-ups that are like, why aren't we catching these people who are flying into our airspace? Right. We're seeing them. Why can't we get to them? They built a whole aircraft just to try to catch the U-2. And that's a whole thing. Anyway, so the first missile hit near the tail, and the second missile, according to him, took off half of the left wing. Investigators say that the latter was probably incorrect. Yeah. As the last radio transmissions to Tokyo Raider were done using high frequency one radio, which is on the left wing tip. Yep. One. Two, the maneuvers that they were doing, you probably can't do without half of a wing. They would have fallen. Mm-hmm. So that was all in the report. Asipovich was also interviewed in the Mayday episode. Mm-hmm. So yes. go watch that. It's on YouTube. I looked up if we could just include a clip here. That violates all sorts of copyright garbage, so I figured, no. So his interview varies a bit from what the report says, which is what the report said that he said to a magazine. It's a phone, game of telephone. Yep. In the episode, he said he saw the plane and thought the lights looked like a civilian plane, but that could have been a disguise. He said at one point that they were almost side by side and the flight crew should have been able to see him. When they ascended to flight level 350, he took it as an evasive maneuver because short of stalling, there's no way that he could have not overtaken them, which is what he had to do because he was going so fast. By them climbing and slowing down, he literally went underneath them, Mm. which he saw as an evasive maneuver because he he sees that as them literally doing a maneuver to get away from them. Mm -hmm. So he then had to do a snake maneuver to like slow down and get back behind them. 
He was then rushed as they were almost flying out back over international waters, and he would no longer have been justified in shooting them down. So he fired both shots. He saw the first explode under the tail, and the lights went out, and he went home. That's how he described it in his interview. To this day, Asipovich still believes he shot down a spy plane. As one person interviewed by Mayday puts it, if that's what he needs to believe to sleep at night after killing 269 people, so be it. I'm not going to try to blame him on that one. So here's the problem I have. So if you know anything about how planes work Mm -hmm. in general, Mm -hmm. even if you're side by side, if you're not looking out the window to find another plane, you're not going to see it. And you're in the middle of the ocean. They have no reason. Or they thought they were. Well, (laughs) they thought. They were supposed to be in the middle of the ocean. Okay, that was their fault, right? I will say that. They should have turned on the mode on their autopilot to make sure that they were going the correct direction. Okay. Right. Not saying that the crew was the crew was absolutely blame free. This is part of why I also said like it's interesting that they still had contact with Korean yeah. Airlines 015 because Korean Airlines 015 was on the right was path. On the right path on the path they were supposed to be on. And so but they were still talking to each other like they were on the same path and they were not. They were far apart. They were hundreds of kilometers apart. Yeah. So but if they're not looking out the window, if you're not worried about hitting another aircraft, if you're in instrument... And you're in cruise flight. Right. You're, you're probably just chilling. You're chilling. You're not they were chatting. Look. Even if he was right next... Which, by the way, even if he was right next to them, even next to the wing, they can't see the wing mm-hmm. from where they are. You right. can't, Unless you're looking out and back, you can't see the wing. Right. And, I mean, the only people that, if he was actually next to them, right, the only people who had been able to see him were the people on, like, the passengers. Yep. Which, I, and, I mean, it's night. It's dark. They're probably sleeping. Like, who knows? Yep. Right? They were 100% we sleeping. They had just announced, hey, we're going to serve breakfast before we land in, like, three hours. So people are probably like, I guess I'll wake up. But my thing is, is like, oh, they should have been able to see me. No, they can't see you. Right. And even if they could, they weren't looking for you right. because and they had no idea you were there. Take all of his interviews, whether it be with that newspaper magazine or with Mayday with a grain of salt. It's been how many years? Right. And confirmation bias, you're going to change your perception of events over time to right. fit your narrative. Because also, I mean, for one, the U.S. military never confirmed if their RC-135 ever returned to base. <laughs> or if true. it too may have been shot down this piece of information is not there two an rc-135 is based on a 707 which is an airliner so yeah like i get i get the whole well maybe but also it's like really really i honestly think i don't blame him at all he was following orders at the end of the day if you're gonna blame anyone who's blame the ussr yeah Oh, Blame his them. chain of command because he followed orders, which is what any good military personnel would do, right or wrong. Yeah, that's I true. placed zero blame on him. Yep. I just, you know, you know, Linda. <laughs> listen, 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 Linda. Linda. <laughs> it still pisses me off. I know it's the, to, over two hundred people died because the USSR was like you're in our airspace, which I get. But you're violating also, my airspace. But also, right. Linda. Usually this involves an escort out. And to this day, actually, Russia's usually pretty good about that. Where even if a military aircraft flies into their airspace, they'll usually just intercept and escort right back out. 
They're like, uh-uh, you ain't staying here. Like, you ain't staying here. Well, and it's interesting because I don't know what the exact ICAO rules were at the time of the shoot-down, but as I mentioned earlier, they amended it Yes. Mm-hmm. afterward. Right. So I don't know where things stood at the time of the accident. And I will still classify this as an accident because he didn't mean to shoot down a civilian airliner and, and they, they didn't, didn't mean to be there. Right, they didn't mean to be in the wrong place. So I still call this an accident. Not, I mean, it's intentional, but it's not. It's an accident. Right. Yes. Okay. We're gonna End take, of part one. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to take a break break and we'll come back and I'll do all the stuff that Nick normally does. Yes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back. Welcome back. Okay. <laughs> Conclusions, as it is in the report. These are the findings. Yes. By the way. Uh, flight crew was properly certified, qualified for the flight. You would say so, but they didn't switch over the autopilot. So. Right. So something <laughs> went wrong. The flight crew were physically fit, but extended the time zone crossings and the level of utilization of crew, flight, and duty times had the potential for one or more of the flight crew to experience fatigue and a reduction of situational awareness. I agree. I don't know if you were really paying attention to that, but okay, first of all, they were scheduled to do a more than eight-hour flight, which, mm, questionable. Normally, normally you have relief crew for that. Yeah. Right, questionable. Second of all, they were the relief crew from another crew, but they had also flown basically the day before, but that's a barely, and had arrived at 1.30 in the afternoon and then were expected to try to rest and sleep until they needed to be back for an airplane to pick it up at 3.20 in the morning. I, You know, it's really hard to justify that and, like, have a circadian rhythm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what... I mean, what I suppose, is circadian rhythm? I mean, I suppose for them <laughs> flying 747s around the world, there's like no set circadian rhythm <laughs> because where do you set your time zone? But still, like that's not great. The aircraft was properly certificated and had been maintained in accordance. There was nothing wrong with the aircraft itself. Right. Which was interesting because I believe there, I think it was like the number two radio or something was not being used I think we get it. I, I think we're gonna get to that. Okay, I can't remember exactly what it was. I'm pretty sure it pops up in the findings somewhere. I glanced over it. There was no indication of an in-flight failure of navigation systems, the weather radar, the instrumentation, or other equipment of the aircraft. They did wonder if something failed. It didn't. Nope. The adjustment of the departure time for the flight was in accordance with the Korean Airlines standard practice because. Customs wouldn't be open till 6. They couldn't leave until they could get there till 6. Right. <laughs> the actual time of departure of Korean Airlines 007 would have resulted in an on-time arrival in Seoul. So they would have been where they were supposed to be in Seoul when they landed. Right. Korean Airlines... Of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> However. However. <laughs> Korean Airlines 007 turned to a magnetic heading of about 2... Four or five degrees, which it reached three minutes after liftoff and then maintained until the attack. So the heading did not change. Korean Airlines 007 passed approximately six nautical miles north of the Cavern Mountain NDB 
and 12 nautical miles north of Bethel, Vortac. So they weren't exactly where they were supposed to be right. to hit those waypoints. The maintenance of a consistent magnetic heading and the resulting track deviation was due to the crew's failure to note that the autopilot had either been left in heading mode or had been switched to INS when the aircraft was beyond the range, 7.5 nautical miles, for the INS to capture the desired track. It sounds weird, but you are saying that they are maintaining a heading, so it's yes. maintenance of a heading. It's weird. Yes. Yeah. That does sound weird. but It is c- grammatically correct. Maintenance. The maintenance That was of- not correct. <laughs> <laughs> The maintenance of a constant magnetic heading was not due to any aircraft system malfunction. So it wasn't because something malfunctioned on the aircraft. They literally, one of those two things I just said either happened. They effed up. The autopilot was not controlled by an INS. They were not in INS mode. Manual control of the autopilot was not exercised by the crew by the use of the heading selection. So they didn't manually select all the headings or anything. It stayed on one heading. The flight crew's failure to detect that the navigational systems had not been selected correctly to maintain the desired track may have been contributed by the inadequate displays of the operative modes selected. The flight crew did not implement the proper navigational procedures to ensure the aircraft remained on its assigned track throughout the flight. The failure to detect the aircraft's deviation from its assigned track for over five hours indicated a lack of situational awareness and flight deck coordination on the part of the crew. Most definitely, yes. Agreed. <laughs> they were just chilling. Five hours is a long time. It is a long time to realize that you're not in the right place. Right? Like, I would understand if they, like an hour went by and they're like, mm, wait they, a minute. They did have a lot of confirmation bias things happening. Yeah, because of the stuff going on, the, now, the way the... But there were was reading them plenty of signs that they were in the wrong place, though. Yeah. I hear people screaming. What about GPS? You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Don't scream at us yet. We'll get to it later. It's coming. Yes. Korean Airlines training procedures in the use of INS were a- adequate, so they knew how to use the INS. They knew that they were supposed to use the INS. They just didn't use it. They were just kind of dumb. The flight crew had the necessary training and exercise in long-range navigational procedures. So I think what part of this is, too, is they were fatigued. It's really early in the morning when they left. Yep. And when you're really tired, you sometimes go into autopilot, and sometimes that means you don't do the right thing. Mm -hmm. The deviation from its assigned track resulted in Korean Airlines 007 penetrating USSR's sovereign airspace over... Kamchatsky? I don't speak Russian. Peninsula. It's the big giant peninsula and when you Sok- look at Russia. Sakhalin Island and the surrounding t- territorial waters. According to the representatives of the United States, the military radar installations in Alaska were not aware in real time that the aircraft was proceeding west with an increasing northerly deviation from the recognized airway system. There was no way for them to know that they were not on the right track because right. there's not radar in the middle of the ocean. So, really, the only people who would know is the USSR. Yep. And they knew. And they knew. Obviously. They knew. Korean Airlines 007 proceeded westbound out of the Alaskan ADIZ through the, through the Alaskan DEWIZ and the Alaskan Air Command buffer zone well north of R-20, which is one of the It's the It's the highways. highway they were supposed oh, to be on. Yes. According to the representatives of the United States, no radar observations were made of the westbound aircraft north of R-20 and crossing the Alaskan identification zones. Again, ocean. Yep. There was no indications that the crew of 007 deliberately maintained a constant magnetic heading. 
Oh, the crew didn't know. Oh. They didn't know that that's say, what they were doing. I was going to say, wait a minute. I was like, wait, yeah, I had to like reread that. They didn't know that that's what they were doing. There was a normal, relaxed atmosphere on the flight deck of 007. They, again, didn't know that they were not on the right track. Mm-hmm. The proximity of the RC-135, a United States intelligence aircraft, and Flight 007 northeast of that peninsula we talked about. Kamchatka. Yeah, Kamchatka. Resulted in confusion and the assumption by the USSR air defense that the aircraft proceeding towards the USSR was the RC-135. I still don't fault them for this assumption. To be fair, if there's no way to tell the difference... And apparently we've given precedent for that situation before. Okay. Listen. The USSR military aircraft attempted to intercept Flight 007 over said peninsula, but they couldn't catch them because they are slow. Right. Or they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't find them Slow enough that they couldn't shoot them down where they were at. Well, and they couldn't find it. Well, you know, we make it sound like it's easy to just spot a 747, but when it's dark and you have all this airspace to look at. Yeah. It's literally like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Yep. Mm. If you ever go up flying, like in a GA aircraft, and you see on your ADSB that there's an airplane nearby. Oh, good luck. I have done that with Brendan where he's like, hey, there's an airplane over here. Can you see it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I can't see it. It is a sobering experience. And honestly, it's kind of scary. It's very scary because they're so tiny and yet they can get really close to you without you being able to see them. So I don't know. If I've told this story before, but the first time I went up with Nick and his dad, there was a Broncos game going on downtown and they were having a fighter jet do a flyover. And they said, there's a TRO. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. And they're like, there's a fighter jet. Keep an eye out. I'm like, where? (laughs) I didn't see it until it was past us. Like it had already flown right next to us. It's tiny and it happens so fast and it blends in with the ground and there's so many things. I mean, it just, it's amazing. how. And that was during the day. Right. It's amazing how hard it is to spot these things. Can you imagine at night? No. Mm No. No. Information was freely available to flight crews that an aircraft penetrating prohibited areas of the USSR sovereign airspace over that peninsula and Sakhalin Island might be fired upon without warning. I don't know if they actually knew that. But it, they weren't supposed to be flying over those areas anyway, so I don't know if they would have even considered it to be a problem. Yeah, why, why would it matter to them? Because they are not supposed to be over those areas. The USSR Air Defense Command Center personnel on Sockland Island were concerned with the position of the intruder aircraft in relation to USSR sovereign airspace as well as its identity. The time factor became paramount in the USSR Air Defense Command Centers as the intruder aircraft was about to coast out of the Sakhalin Island airspace. Right. They just wanted to shoot it down before it left. Right. <laughs> just to prove a point. Right. That's that's kind of where I have a problem. Is it's like, like, it's almost out of your airspace. It's going to leave. Let it leave. Let it's it leave. over. It's done. If it was an actual U.S. military aircraft, they probably would actually come back over airspace at some point. Right. I don't know. I don't know what we did in the 1980s. I wasn't alive. Neither was I. <laughs> I was alive for the last nine months. Congratulations. So you're an 80s baby, quote unquote. Quote unquote. Pretty much an 80s baby. Yeah. Exhaustive efforts to identify the intruder aircraft were not made, although apparently some doubt remained regarding its identity. The USSR military aircraft intercepted Flight 007 over Sakhalin Island. Yes, 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 yes. It was not possible to assess the distance of the interceptor aircraft from the intruder, nor... Their relative positions when the interceptor's lights were flashed and the cannon fired. They did not see the other aircraft. Right. 
Obviously. Basically, what they're saying here is it's hard. Like, there's no way to verify what the pilot said happened. Right. Well, and there wouldn't be, right? I mean, but they didn't say anything on the flight deck about seeing another aircraft. And radar is only so precise, especially at this time in history. Radars also only made so many sweeps per minute. Yeah. Right. So it's like, how are we supposed to tell how close the interceptor got to the flight? Could the flight have seen them? Could they have seen the cannon shots? Like, there's no way to know. They were supposed to be in cruise flight over the middle of nowhere, so they probably weren't even paying attention out the window at all. There's no way. They had no reason to. They're in cruise flight. Why were they? It's boring. Out the window is nothing but black to them. Literally black. There is nothing out there. The USSR military aircraft did not comply with the ICAO standards and recommended practices for interception of civil aircraft before attacking 007. Not sure what those standards were at the time. No, but apparently they did not do what they were supposed to. Okay, but this is also Soviet Russia. To be fair, yes. Usually when you intercept, you are supposed to fly very close and also sometimes in front of the aircraft in order to get their attention. Yeah, to be like, hey, I'm here. Depending on the situation. That makes sense. But I also understand not wanting to do that in case it is an enemy aircraft. It's like, let me fly right in front of you, and you may have missiles. Well, right, but big military aircraft, fighter jet, not. probably get away. Yeah, there's all sorts of ways they do intercepts, and it's supposed to be done a certain way in order to get them out of your airspace, not to shoot them down. Yeah. The USSR Air Defense Command assumed that Flight 007 was a United States RC-135 reconnaissance aircraft before they ordered its destruction. So they didn't know it was a 747 commercial aircraft. Right. They, I mean, there's no way to know the difference on radar, so. The military radar installations of the Japanese Defense Agency were aware that an aircraft was tracking into USSR airspace over Sakhalin Island. According to the representatives of Japan, they were not aware that it was a civil aircraft off its intended track. There's no way to know that that was what it was on radar. Right. Because this was Japan, and it was and their they couldn't defense see anything. System, yeah, right. They they didn't intervene. According to the representatives of Japan, Flight 007 was squawking SSR code thirteen hundred when observed by the Japanese military radar installations. I don't think that was recorded on the FDR, so there's no way to confirm that. Sure. It was common practice among flight crews to squawk a non-discrete SSR code ending with 00 before selecting code 2000 for entry into Tokyo radar-controlled airspace in the vicinity of NOHO, or N-O-H-O. The flight crew of 007 was not aware of the presence of the USSR interceptor aircraft before or at the time of the attack, or at least that's what the CVR told them. They had no idea it was there. Flight 007, otherwise known as 007, 007. it does get referred to that way, was hit by at least one of two air-to-air missiles fired from a USSR Su-15 interceptor aircraft. As a result of the attack, there was substantial damage to Flight 007, which affected the controllability of the aircraft and caused its loss of cabin pressure. The flight crew of 007 retained limited control of the aircraft and responded correctly to the loss of cabin pressure. So the actual... Expected impact. So, yes, it was only one of two missiles. And that one missile actually didn't even hit the aircraft either. It was estimated to have exploded 160 feet behind and beside the aircraft. But it still punctured the aft bulkhead. Right. Leading to a depressurization. And as we know, there's a lot of hydraulic systems that run through the uh, tail. Yep. Not that we've covered that before or anything, episode one. Right. 
It was not possible to determine the position of 007 at the time of the missile attack in relation to the USSR sovereign airspace. Because they were in their airspace, there was no other radio right. that or radar that would have been able to pick them up. The flight recorders simultaneously caused Operation 1 minute and 44 seconds after the missile impact. The aircraft descended in a spiral and radar contact was lost at... 5,000 meters at 1835 hours UTC. It could not be established whether the crew was able to maintain limited control, which eventually broke up, so no, they right. wouldn't have been able to. There's no way. The aircraft was destroyed on impact with the sea. The impact was not survivable. No, because you're going really fast and hitting a non-compressible It's not fluid. good. Incompressible. <laughs> Whatever. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Tomato, potato, I'm same still, difference. I still thought you turned into a pancake. <laughs> yeah. I'm just happy that I am able to spread my wealth of engineering knowledge and you actually, like, retain it. I would hope so. We're on episode 148. Yeah. If I didn't learn anything, I would be as stupid as some of the listeners Guys, say. we're getting really close to three years into this. Continue. <laughs> Continue. During the interception, USSR rescue services were alerted, and following the destruction of 007, they were directed to the area. The Tokyo ACC and RCC took the appropriate steps to alert the emergency services when the aircraft became overdue. So when it didn't get to where it was supposed to and didn't contact anybody, they were like, hey, something happened. It didn't contact anybody. (laughs) Hey. We have a problem. Okay, so there's two more sections. One of them is the safety actions taken since 1983, and then the last one are the recommendations, and there's only three of them. So, Following the ICAO fi- fact-finding investigation of the destruction of Korean Airlines Flight 007 in 1983, the ICAO provisions pertaining to interception of civil aircraft were examined and amendments were made. The Annex Amendments became applicable in November of 1986. Associated guidance material concerning the interception of civil aircraft was developed, and the Manual Concerning Interceptions of Aircraft was published in 1984. There was a bunch of numbers and stuff in there. If you want to read the exact annexes, go Go for for it. it. Be my guest. We don't know. Following the ICAO fact-finding investigation of the destruction of Iran Air Flight 655 in 1988, a second edition of the Manual Concerning Interception of Civil Aircraft was published in 1990. It consolidated all ICAO provisions and special recommendations related to the interception of civil aircraft and contained guidance material and amplification of the various provisions and special recommendations. In addition, the manual concerning safety measures relating to military activities potentially hazardous to civil aircraft operations was developed and published in 1990. Don't recommend that flight, the Iran Air Flight 655. It will air in November. There you go. Just so you know. Guidance on the use of weather radar in long-range navigation has been included in the North Atlantic MNPS Airspace Operations Manual and the North Pacific Airspace Operations Manual published in 1983. Significant enhancements in fields of communications, navigations, and surveillance have been implemented since 1983 for operations in the NOPAC route systems. Northern Pacific. Yep. Yep. 
the United States has integrated several civil and military surveillance radars into the Anchorage ARTCC. Air Route Traffic Control Center. Thank you. Mandatory navigation cross-checking procedures have been implemented following the signing in 1985 of a trilateral... Yes, that's correct. Memorandum of understanding between Japan, the USSR, and the United States. A dedicated voice circuit was commissioned in 1986 between Anchorage, Kabarsk, Kabarovsk, whatever. I don't know. And Tokyo. With corresponding operating procedures. Further improvements are being persuaded between the Russian Federation and the United States to accommodate a growing demand for safe, regular, efficient, and economical civil flight operations in the area. Guess what? We're not doing a whole lot of flights in that area. No. So safety, that was the safety recommendation since 1983. So this is the recommendation portion. It's very short. You mean the safety actions since 1983? Yeah, whatever. It's things yeah. that they did. <laughs> they definitively already did. Yes, these things changed. Yeah. Here's more things you need to do. So it is recommended that where existing aircraft are not already fitted with clear indication when the autopilot and flight director are in the heading mode. A, operators remind crews of the consequences of leaving the autopilot and flight director in heading select mode. B, procedures for long-range navigation include a specific check that INS has captured the navigation mode before entering oceanic airspace. And C, consideration be given to retrofitting all aircraft not so equipped with a mode enunciator with an indication of heading select mode operation. And that's it. Make it idiot-proof. Yep. There should have been, like, a a thing on the checklist to say switch to INS. INS. Capture INS. I'm sure it's probably on it now. If they even um, use this anymore. They do not. Which... They use <laughs> GPS, aka Global Positioning System. So this was not mentioned in the report because it wasn't like really a big thing to this point. But let me pull up the Wikipedia page so I'm not just spouting crap. Yeah, you have to realize we are talking about the early 1980s. Okay. GPS was not really a thing Mm-mm. yet. Not a usable thing. No. Like, potentially military-ish, but not even that. So, on September 16th, 1983, you know, two weeks later, President Reagan announced that the Global Positioning System, or GPS, would be made available for civilian use, free of charge. Prior to this point, it was all military. How coincidental is that? Yep. (laughs) I use GPS for, like, every aspect Me of too. my life. <laughs> here I am sitting over here staring at maps. Mm-hmm. Like, there are times when I've had to fill out, like, manual timesheets and stuff. I'm like, I don't know. What time did I get there? Let me just check Google Maps because it tracks me awkwardly. Like, you can use it for so many things. Ads track where you go. Right. Like, it is used so consistently in every day part of life. And at this point in history, only the military used it. So yep. this was a huge thing. Yeah. Gigantic. and World changing, quite literally. This mm-hmm. changed aerial navigation just as drastically. Because that's what you use now. Airplanes, for the most part, are all outfitted with GPS. Yep. Waypoints don't usually get used anymore across the ocean. Nope. Sure, you still follow a highway. Yep. But... I mean, it follows waypoints, quote-unquote, but it's literally just following, basically... A given route based on GPS. That's about it. Yeah. And we still use waypoints into and out of airspaces, but mm-hmm. that's not 
that's about it. Yeah, they've changed a lot of waypoints over the years because as GPS becomes a lot more accurate, they're able to make airplanes fly exact routes that yes. are more favorable. Yes. For airspace and for people below and such, and especially as cities change and the world changes, they want to change these routes. So waypoints come and go all the time. I'm looking at other things that changed. Korean Air still flies from JFK to Seoul. Yep. In case you thought they didn't. But direct. They no longer stop at Anchorage, and they no longer fly to Gimpo. They fly into Incheon. Yep. Flight number 007 has since been retired. I would hope so. Please. Usually, flights like this that have a lot of casualties, they retire the flight number. Yep. Using flight numbers for two separate flights as 82, 85, and 250, as of September 2018, which was a while ago, the separate flights were using an Airbus A380 and a Boeing 777. They use 777s, as well as 787 and A330 for main, most of their routes. They do have the A380. They're starting to bring them back, but it's primarily for like West Coast US flights, like LAX. So it's not to say that they couldn't fly it to LAX, but from what I know, they're still flying. Or to JFK, they're still flying them. Well, and now because we have, you know, those efficient jumbo jets. Oh, yeah. They don't need to stop. Nope. Exactly. They don't need to have a stopover to fuel. They can carry more people with less stops. Yep. (laughs) So why do any of that? Right. (laughs) Just cut out the middleman. The U.S. Korean Airlines 007 Victims Association, under the leadership of Hans Ephraimson Apt, successfully lobbied U.S. Congress and the airline industry to accept an agreement that would ensure that future victims of airline incidents would be compensated quickly and fairly by increasing compensation and lowering the burden of proof of airliner misconduct. This legislation has had far-reaching effects for the victims of subsequent aircraft disasters. Good, good. Yep. Part of this investigation, which was covered briefly on the Wikipedia page, was that to determine the level of compensation, they had to determine the extent of passenger suffering. So they had to figure out for what period of time passengers were conscious and how much pain they endured. This to me doesn't seem like something we need to figure out. I not, don't. Not anymore. They're dead. Right. This so feels So it useless. couldn't have been comfortable. They established that there were passengers conscious at the time of impact with the water. And that was a factor in determining how much of a payout the families got. I hate all of this. So, there is a crap ton of information on the Wikipedia page that we did not cover because this episode is already freakishly long. Uh, if you want to go dive into a rabbit hole, be my guest. There's but, a lot more interesting information yeah. about this accident. There's conspiracy theories that we will not entertain. Nope. Nope. So, that was Korean Airlines Flight 007. Yes. AK-007. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons. You guys are amazing. Thank you, Paige, for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was great. And thank you for doing all the things in future that you're going to do. Of course. (laughs) And uh, thank you guys, as always. If you can, recommend us to other people. Please. Give us a A like. A like. Subscribe to us on whatever you listen Share to. Share our post on Facebook Give or Twitter. Give me a thumbs Like up. our social media. Etc. It helps. Tell you don't me. think it helps, but it helps. It helps. We appreciate it. Tell us we're doing good. That's right. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. 
Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.